Hello and welcome to the Glass Frog Podcast. I am your co-host, Jen Puma, and I have my other co-host here, Rebecca Casciano. And if you haven't already been able to tell from the first sentence of this podcast, we're doing things a little bit differently today. We are wrapping up season four of the Glass Frog podcast, which is amazing that we've made it this long through a pandemic. Here we are, season four. And um, this year, we thought we would take the opportunity to make our last episode of the season one of reflection. And so we're kind of just going to launch into a conversation um, with Rebecca and I and and get straight to it and um, really talk about our theme this season, which was just a really important one to us. And we, we felt the need to digest together. So Rebecca, talk to us a little bit about the theme for this season. Yeah. So the theme kind of, I, I will say, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I will say it kind of emerged after we had started putting together kind of the list of guests, we were looking yeah. at kind of the, what was cutting across all of the episodes and how we could kind of tie them together coherently. And so we realized that in all of the episodes we were touching in different ways, but loosely on the theme of inclusivity or inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so by that, we just meant that, you know, thinking about ways of integrating many different voices or different perspectives into our work or using different perspectives to inform the way we approach our work. And that can mean a lot of different things. It can apply to like how we do our work internally as an organization mm-hmm. or how we interface with clients or how we collect data, or there's just lots of different ways in which we can think about it. And so, you know, we've thought a lot about inclusion over the course of the season. And I think, you know, I, I personally kept thinking about it in the context of one type of client work we do. As I said before, it can be, I, I think it's relevant everywhere, but I just kept going back to kind of what one type of client work, and that's our evaluation capacity building work and the ways in which in that work, we could involve more voices in our projects. So we do a lot of, for example, theory of change work, but we, you know, we also help organizations set up systems for measurement or identify what they want to measure and how they're going to measure Mm -hmm. it and how they're going to report. And I think kind of cutting across all of those types of projects, there's ways in which we can be more thoughtful about how we're integrating perspectives other than our own um, mm-hmm. and other than kind of the, the leaders of, of the organization in, into our work. So yeah, so I've been reflecting a lot on that and I'm eager to hear Jen's thoughts as well. I, I'll confess that as I reflected, I found myself being a little bit of a Debbie Downer. Um, <laughs> I would think of some ideas for how we could do better. And then like my knee jerk reaction would be like, uh, mm-hmm. but, but what about this? Or, I Oh, I don't know. I, it seems like this couldn't happen. It's so, my superpower and my curse. Like the, yeah. that, that devil's advocate is what makes me good at my job as like, I say a project manager of like, this could go wrong. And what about this? And what about this? And then like, it's like a huge roadblock in my life. <laughs> it really is. And it's not a reason not to try it, but I just right. kept thinking there has to have to be like a few kind of simple fixes or simple ways in which we can. And I think there are, 
But to do it well, I actually don't think it's that simple. I think that, for example, taking the theory of change work that we do, and you do so much of it, so that's why I'm eager to hear your thoughts on this, to try and get lots of different perspectives or input from many different people who are involved with or affected by a program or or an organization sounds really great, (laughs) but I think on paper Mm -hmm. is is really challenging in a world of kind of limited time, limited resources, limited attention span, you know, from a lot of the people who are working on these types of projects on the client side with us. Mm -hmm. And so I just kept thinking that even though it sounded like, you know, it sounds simple to say, you know, you just have to include lots of voices. I think to do that well and not in a performative way is actually a lot more challenging than we think. Yeah. And one observation that I have made recently, just it's just happenstance that our client work has panned out this way. You know, we typically, our portfolio has a lot of education clients, but we have one of our clients who does, I guess, like public infrastructure design projects. And so the community design approach to their work, it's embedded in everything that they do because that's how they do their work. Like they do their work in the community with the community, side by side with the community. And so in working with them on a theory of change recently, I've noticed how they don't even think about it. It's like, well, we're going to go back to the community partners and we're going to show them this. It was like not even a question of like, well, how will we like we didn't even have to prompt them. It was just it's so innate in like how they do work. And so it was making me think that like part of this is like cultural, maybe, so you know, a cultural within like a sector where, say, when I think of our education clients, like they're constantly like, measuring and assessing and trying to quantify impact. But the the education sector has always been like the forerunner of that because that's what education does. Like they're constantly assessing their students. So they're, they're very comfortable being like, yes, we will administer these tests. You know, we'll collect this empirical data. But then you talk to the group that does like community led work and they're like, I don't know how we're going to quantify this because it's a different, like the impact that they're making. It's different. It's not that it's not quantifiable, but like, that's where I see them, like that in that sector, like struggle a little bit more culturally. It's like not as clearly embedded into like how they do their work. And so, you know, in reflecting on theory of change work and and how we can do work a little bit differently, it's now making me think like, we almost have to think about like the characteristics maybe of the sectors that we're working in, like at a bigger, like these like cultural characteristics of like how our clients do their work. And like, in some cases it might be much easier to make the case or to, it'll be almost odd if we didn't say we wanted to incorporate more voices, like then we're going to look like we're not the right fit versus maybe stretching the the comfort zone of some of our clients in other sectors where it's like, well, how would we go to a classroom of fourth graders and get there, you know, like they're receiving this intervention. Like, what are we going to get the fourth graders to tell us about, about our theory of change? You know, and it's not that children can't have a, a voice like, but thinking about how to do that and all of the barriers. Um, so like even being able to talk to a kid just like because of 
institutional review boards like IRB, <laughs> IRBs. Like we don't just get to go talk to kids. <laughs> you know, like there are certain measures in place that keep us separate from the population that is being served. Then thinking really intentionally about how we can kind of build that voice in. So this is a, uh, not an answer to your question, but kind of an, another layer of observations that I've been having recently just because it's coincided now with how our portfolio is right now, where I'm really starting to see different characteristics. And so maybe we need to kind of like think about that when we're thinking about our work and thinking about how we can appropriately stretch the clients and the sectors that we're working with, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And as you were talking, I was thinking, this is kind of a half-baked thought, but I'll I'll share it. You know, I think so much of evaluation in some ways borrows on the frameworks from other fields of scientific inquiry. Mm -hmm. And specifically, I think a lot about, you know, the way we talk about evaluation or like learn about evaluation in classrooms. You know, we learn about randomized control trials, which are, you know, used obviously heavily in, you know, the medical and pharmaceutical industries in order to test the efficacy of uh, certain interventions. And it made me realize that, you know, like in healthcare, if you're designing like a drug that, you know, you're trying to determine how it affects, let's say cholesterol or something like that, you're not really like asking the patient for their feedback on it. You know, you might want to (laughs) know some indicators of, you know, like, is it causing, you know, sleepless nights or is it causing, you know, any like physical or mental issues for you? But you're not like soliciting their feedback. And I it's so interesting because I, I think because we borrow so heavily, I think, from those methods, I think there's almost a tendency to treat the work we do like it's, you know, a drug study or something mm-hmm. like that. And we divorce ourselves from kind of pulling in the perspectives of the people who are immersed in the intervention that you're implementing or affected by in some way, the intervention that you're implementing. And I I think, you know, at least for me anyway, because I guess maybe because of the training that I had or or whatever, you know, I, I think that like forcing myself out of that paradigm of like, we're the researchers and they're the subjects and and thinking about them as kind of co-researchers is a stretch for me (laughs) Um, because thinking about like how to do that productively and do that well and not in an exploitative way where, you know, like how can we do it in a way that's honorable, but still also really useful? These are all the questions that kind of came up for me. And they're things that I've thought a lot about over the years, but like this season in particular was like really kind of pushing me to think outside of, you know, the typical paradigms that I usually operate in. Yeah. And I, I think that gets back to your, like you were saying, that sort of Debbie Downer and your knee-jerk reaction ends up being like, ah, how, how are we going to, how are we going to do this? But, you know, we did learn about some strategies, but there were just some takeaways from this season, I guess, for the both of us that maybe we can talk about that can inch us closer to some manageable change, you know, like change that doesn't feel like we have to like wholesale, like change how we're doing everything. And that just seems so daunting, but like very small incremental change. And that showed up in like a couple of different ways. So like 
maybe we'll start by saying like, I don't think any of this, the fixes are just like simple. I think you've mentioned that, um, you know, outside of this conversation to me, Rebecca, that just like in a world of, you know, limited resources, <laughs> what do you, what do you end up doing? But maybe the answer to that is like, it's an annoying answer. It's like, it depends, you know, it sort of depends on like the client that we're dealing with and the project, but maybe more important is going into each experience, each engagement, each partnership, thinking that we have options, you know, like not going in with the Debbie Downer of like, well, this is how we do it. Like blinders on, like, this is how we approach every capacity building project, regardless of like what sector you're in or regardless of whatever, like, you know, if we go into it, not being willing to change or not asking the questions every time, then like, that's the worst thing that we could do. Best thing we could do is like ask ourselves some key questions and like, maybe we do things the same and that's okay. Cause maybe we're like, this is what we feel like is warranted. But if we're not asking the questions like shame on us, you know, if we're not like trying to broaden our sphere, like then that's like, that's our bad for like not doing better by our, our clients, by even saying like, we can do more, we can do better for a particular situation. Yeah, I totally agree. And you said something about like the simple fixes before, and we agree there are no simple fixes, but I think like in the spirit of just kind of asking yourself at the outset of projects, like, how can we be better? How can we maybe do this differently? One thing I really appreciated about some of our conversations this season were that they were kind of presenting ways of doing work that weren't kind of like wholesale, you know, upheavals of, <laughs> of you know, the way that you do projects, but rather kind of frameworks or orientations for approaching your work that can inform the way that you ask questions mm -hmm. or you know, collect data or, you know, report on data. So I, for example, the, you know, the episode on the trauma-informed evaluation, yep. I, I, one of the biggest takeaways from that was that like trauma-informed evaluation isn't like a method, it's an orientation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the same with our conversation about data equity, it's the same thing. It's not, you know, this like binary thing you're doing or you're not doing or whatever. It's you know, an orientation toward your work. It's asking questions and pushing yourself to ensure that you're thinking about the implications from, you know, an equity perspective um, mm -hmm. or thinking about your the implications of your work from a trauma-informed perspective. And so I actually found that thinking about that really useful because it seems like there are a set of questions we could ask ourselves at the outset of projects that would, you know, force us to say, you know, what are the equity implications here? What are the trauma implications here? Um, how can we make sure that we're thinking and being thoughtful about this from the beginning? Yeah. And it could be, you know, like we didn't make this disclaimer at the outset, but, you know, we're not going to get into, I guess, all of the fixes that like we as like a glass frog can make because that is not very probably interesting to all of our listeners out there and not very relevant. But what what is relevant, I feel like, is this reflection that we're going through and then just kind of noting like, hey, we can make, like, what do we do with this next? And so what you just said, Rebecca, is like making me think of some things that we could do next that we don't have to actually like explore here, but that like at the very least I'll jot down around, you know, maybe we start making some sort of like list of questions of like, depending on the category of project that we're working on, we can 
make sure we're asking certain questions throughout equity inclusion of voices, like, you know, how how participatory the process can be, et cetera, and kind of like just have a guide for ourselves so that we're being honest right at the outset of projects. Because it's as a project manager, and obviously for you as a small business owner, like if you don't think about these things, like at the scoping phase, you know, when you're very, very early on, it's very hard to change course later and, and say, oh, but wait, like we should be you know, like actually drawing this process out more and let's include these voices or have you thought about X, Y, and Z as you're collecting this data and it's not very equitable. Like it's really hard, you know, like if if we're not level setting with ourselves and with the client that like, hey, we're going to approach the work in this way at the outset, it can be very jarring. And then, you know, I think it could not go, the project cannot go well. And then unfortunately you don't get anywhere, but you know, like something positive turns into a negative and we don't want that to happen. So I really do feel like this it's it's so imperative that whatever action we take like and whatever internal tools we create for ourselves are really happening at the scoping phase and like like contract phase mm-hmm. like very early on. The nice thing about the equity work is that Heather Krauss did a lot of the work for oh, us she's, already. Yeah, <laughs> she's an angel the, the from frame, heaven, that exactly, one. Exactly. The, the framework it's alone would be useful Agreed. in terms of like just using that as a gut check as you're developing proposals or... So yeah, thanks, Heather. <laughs> I know. Yeah, and folks, if you haven't listened to the Heather Krauss episode, please, please do. And, and definitely go to her website, uh, We All Count because she has a lot of resources on there that because she, she wants people to like take this and and run with it it's it's, it's she's not trying to like be proprietary about it or, or hold it close to the vest and so she's like yes like think about these frameworks build it into your work like you know go go forth <laughs> so that more of us are doing this instead of less so yeah definitely check that out it exists i had a question for you, Jen. I was thinking through like some of the different methods that we learned about this season, like ripple effect mapping, or in the episode with Andy Johnson, we learned about a couple of different arts-based methods. And so my question for you is, I actually, it was like two questions, like which method do you think you'd be most likely to try with clients? Like which one seems just the best fit for the type mm-hmm. of client work that you do and the ways in which you want to, you know, work with clients. And then conversely, which method do you think would be the most difficult to try with clients? So because of the, I do a lot of capacity building work, I'm, I'm working with clients more on like the front end versus like, I think I felt like a lot of what we were talking about is kind of more like, what are the different ways where you could get collect data in this very inclusive way about impact, like about at the, like kind of the end of the <laughs> the process. That said, I really want to do ripple effect mapping. Let me let me let me answer your question first. <laughs> it's like I really 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 want to do it, and I I don't know when we will ever get to do it, but I really want to do it. So yes, like that is definitely something that I want to try. Something that I did try recently in a client project, which was a theory of change project, was to start with like a very simple, it's more of like an arts-based teaching method, which is to do uh, visual inquiry with a client. And so the scenario, just to tee it up for folks, was like, we're kicking off this theory of change project and 
we're doing some like uh, level setting around like well, what is a theory of change like you know doing some some basic like education so that everyone's on board and everybody has the same level of understanding but instead of making it sort of pedantic and like dry presenting them with a theory of change that belongs to someone else and then just saying what do you see what do you notice no wrong answers like you're noticing colors you're no you know you're noticing okay there's bands of colors and those bands seem to represent something you're noticing you know sentence structure you're you know like they really it was it was all fair game and we spent 10 15 minutes doing this and they i had not done it before but i in the spirit of wanting to be more inclusive and kind of like trust a little bit more i think like let the reins go a little bit where it's like not me trying to exhibit that I know what a theory of change is but being comfortable with letting them figure out what the theory of change is in like a very like organic way that I, I, you know, was like, okay, you know, in the spirit of like just everything that we've been thinking about and talking about this season with the podcast, I was like, I'm going to give this a try. And I think it went really well. Like they, maybe it's just- I was that, on that call. I thought it went really well. And right, they were and we, really <laughs> pulling out some really important themes, I felt like. I was almost like, it feels like Jen planted some of these people in the audience. I, I felt like I did, but I observations did were a little bit too good. <laughs> they were perfect. I, I agree. And, and maybe it was because we gave them- like kind of a guide ahead of time. And they, I did tell them to read the guide ahead of time, which was just like what, you know, that told them about what theories of change are in like a very dry way. So they sort of like had the dry text of like, this is what it is. So to be fair, like they didn't come in like totally cold, but you know, we just kind of started off then with something that was like more fun and more inclusive and getting them to talk instead of us doing all of the talking. And so, you know, just the idea of like, how can I structure this presentation that's focusing on like their voice and then teeing up that like what we're doing is there is reflective of their voice and their what their makes sense to their team and not even that we're like looking at this example and now you have to look like this, you have to be like this. Um, we're just using it as a springboard to help you kind of like internalize like, oh, okay, this is this is kind of what we're headed towards, but you know, we have to do it in our own authentic way. So I will say that that was a very small exercise, but it was like, you know, or small way in which I was trying to exercise like what we've learned and apply it this year um, or from the season, even though it's not like a back end, you know, like I, I was kind of saying before, like a lot of the things that we talked about are like ways to extract out impact, you know, for, you know, and include the voices of, of folks that are experiencing the program and, and getting their perspective. But I was like, okay, how can we still get multiple voices, even it, just at every stage of the process, you know, and starting with like even the kickoff. And so that's kind of like where my head has been at is just like, I think we said this a few minutes ago, it's just like, how can we build this into our work at each stage very intentionally. Maybe it doesn't make sense, but it, we should ask ourselves the question. And like, maybe it's an exercise. Maybe it's 10 minutes of, <laughs> of something. Like it could be really small to like what you were saying earlier, Rebecca. It doesn't have to be a wholesale change of like, we do it all differently, like burn it all down. <laughs> you know, but it's like, we can build in 10 minutes and that kind of like just changes the whole vibe it, ch it changes the whole the whole tenor of like what we're doing and the partnership yeah i i agree As some of the arts-based methods have really been sitting with me and i've been thinking about you know we have some 
focus groups with, with students coming up in a couple of months, students in a computer science program. And I've been thinking about how we could use visual inquiry to start those focus groups, because really the focus groups are probably going to be with students who are not super engaged in the program. And so figuring out ways to kind of tap into what their feelings are about computer science or, you know, just about that class in general, using Mm -hmm. art and having them react to the art is, I don't know, I just think, I think it would be more fun for the students and hopefully potentially elicit more interesting responses than just kind of the textbook focus groups typically do. So yeah, I, I admit some of the arts-based methods are the most alluring for me. Uh-huh, um, or just art, just it just seems like it's a more fun way of doing the work. And then mm-hmm. it also just gives more options in terms of how you can represent findings, mm-hmm. make them accessible to different audiences, or you know, I, I just think there's lots of possibility there. One of the mm-hmm. ones that keeps <laughs> I thought about this when I asked you which one you kind of think would be the most difficult to try. I was thinking about, again, with the Andy Johnson episode, and he was talking about verbatim theater. Yes. Um, Yeah. So as a way of basically like turning your qualitative data, like interview data, focus group data into like a play (laughs) and then Mm -hmm. having the, it it performed rather than just kind of giving it, you know, a dry analysis of, of interviews. And I confess that that would be so fun. I think it would be awesome. I and it, I don't think it will ever happen. Maybe when I am an emeritus member of the Glass Rock emeritus. organization, I will. that is how I will spend my emeritus years. But I just don't know when I'm going to be writing this play. But I, it's, it's, uh, as he was talking about it, I was just, I, it, I felt like I was longing for it. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that would be so great. And we work with arts organizations who I think would actually really like it. Would they pay for it? Not sure, but they think they would really appreciate it. So yeah, it's uh, the art stuff I think is particularly, I think it's, uh, it taps into like a creative part of ourselves that we don't normally get to tap into. But also I just think in terms of thinking about inclusion, there's so many different ways in which people process and interact with you know, the world and data Mm -hmm. and, you know, results, so to speak. And, you know, using art just, I think, helps you figure out ways of making your work more accessible to more people Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, rather than just the people who can sit and process a 40 page report or even, you know, an eight page slide deck, whatever it is, like the options are pretty limited unless you start getting really creative about the ways in which you you know, show what you know. Yeah. And one of the things that stuck with me from the episode with Andy was at, at the end of the episode, I forgot like we, what, what question we asked him, but we, you know, we were like, well, I think it was like, if you're not, if you're this evaluator that loves these ideas, but it doesn't feel like they're creative or doesn't feel like this is accessible to them to be able to actually like execute, like what, what do you do? And his suggestion was hire artists, like hire them you know, so Rebecca, just now when you were like, I want to write a play, but that's not happening. And then I was like, Andy would say like, hire a playwright, like hire someone who has like this experience, maybe, you know, obviously not someone who just writes plays, but like has like this crossover experience of like writing, you know, and presenting and then, you know, being able to kind of like work with data in this space. And so those people do exist. They're 
they're out there but like if we're serious about like wanting to expand our like how we maybe present data we could tap into this whole like we don't have to have the skill set right like to to your point at the beginning like it could be really daunting to be like well now i have to be able to figure out how to be able to do this like well no we can like diversify our team and bring people in with very specialized expertise cuz like we do it with technical things and i think sometimes we just don't think to do it with maybe quote like the the softer skills but like yes we've hired a gis expert to you know help map <laughs> um neighborhood data like yes of course we would hire that person you know so like why not someone with like creative writing experience you know like it um it, it shouldn't be like considered less than <laughs> it's like its own skill set and we clearly don't have it <laughs> jen part of the issue is that i want to write a mediocre play right <laughs> <laughs> you're that's like, you're not hearing that that's actually here. what I want to do. Yes. Is that I want to be the one who gets to write the crappy play that nobody wants to see performed. Well, you're a hundred percent right. That, and, and we live in an area that has a lot of people who would be very capable of writing um, right, right, right. A, a play. So I should maybe not feel like I have to do it myself. Right. Fine. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Are there any other methods that you were thinking of this season, Rebecca, that you wanted to highlight either that you'd be interested in trying or that you think would be really difficult to try? Well, I do think I agree with you. The ripple effect mapping seems really closely aligned with a lot of the yeah. work that we do with clients. And I think that it would give us another way of soliciting input or hearing ideas from multiple perspectives. So I really, I do like that idea a lot. And again, the Debbie Downer in me like thinks immediately of the the barriers, but I actually think of all the things that we learned about um, Mm -hmm. or have talked about over the last few months. Yeah. That one seems like something our clients would probably really dig and Mm -hmm. get into. And so yeah, I think that would be a cool one to try. I'm open to everything, Jen. I, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not a lack of interest on my part. It's typically, uh, just the the logistical issues that that get in the way for me. I know. Like, I know. who will pay for it? That's what I think. Which right. isn't the best orientation, obviously. But and sometimes it makes me long for like an academic setting. Mm. Uh, you know, I, yeah. for forever i was like oh gosh i wouldn't want to be in an academic setting like but there are clear benefits and that's this ability to take i think professional risks or try new things in a way that's you know a little bit easier when you have a salary right that pays you and then you can kind of get a few little grants to, to try new things on the side so yeah I, I do think there's something about the nature of client work that can, I won't say it always, but it can stifle creativity and in some ways like professional growth, unless you're super thoughtful about building in opportunities to, to do new work or do try new things, which yeah. I, you know, we, we need to do. Right. Well, and this kind of dovetails into an observation that I had over the season, which is we didn't intentionally ask every guest this, but I feel like almost every guest ended up making a reference to how they're integrating like other parts of their lives with their evaluation work and like 
that then in turn like informs how they show up with their clients and their colleagues. And so, you know, Heather, I remember uh, talked about this with like being anti-racist and like what she's reading, the podcast she's listening to, how that informs data equity, you know, cause we were like, how, where are you kind of like getting your ideas from? And, re, you know, cause she's like, we're constantly refining. And I'm like, well, what are you reading? What are you doing? And she's like, I'm, I'm, you know, it's just what I'm reading. I'm not like going to a class that's like telling me how to do this. I'm just, you know, kind of taking what the culture is putting out there and then like figuring out how it applies to my work. And, you know, Martha had mentioned, uh, you know, just offhand, I remember her saying like, oh, well, you know, just through her own therapy and her own processing of trauma, like once you see it, you can't unsee how to integrate this trauma-informed approach into what you're doing. And so it kind of came out of her own, you know, just personal work. You know, and even when we talked to Chari in the first episode, she has this love of music and she turned that into making music about evaluation. So we didn't like prompt people to talk about this, but everyone's kind of mentioning like how they're kind of blending these different, you know, spheres of their lives. And so I don't know that if you have any like thoughts on this or if you're like, no, I didn't really get that. You know, you could just be like, I, I think you're, you're stretching it, but I kind of in, in reflecting on this, on this season, I, I felt like people are, kind of doing the meta integrating, like, or being inclusive, you know, <laughs> like at a meta level, they're like taking the different parts of their lives and like integrating it and being inclusive as much as possible as opposed to separate. Yeah, I think for sure that I, I agree with you. And I don't know, as you were talking, I was trying to think of like big picture ways in which I've done this, but I, I think that most of the ways I, I do it is are kind of smaller scale. Same. I mean, you know, any, anytime oh, yeah. you listen to a podcast or, you know, read something new, it's, I actually shouldn't say this. I, I, I immediately think like, how, how does this inform my work? Maybe that says something about me. I don't know if everyone <laughs> is thinking about how it should inform their work. They're probably thinking about like, how can I use this to improve my relationships with my family or, right. or just be a better human? And I'm like, oh, this might make me more productive or this might, but I, it does resonate with me. And it's just, it is so interesting to just think about the ways in which work and life blend together. And I think there's like so many unhealthy ways in which that happens, particularly like during the pandemic and post pandemic where everything was just like for everyone, like professional life and personal life bled together. And we, so I think we often think of it in a negative way, but what you've pointed out here is there's so many different ways in which we can kind of draw on the positive things we're learning in our lives and use them to inform our work. And so yeah, I I like that observation. Yeah, I mean, small ways as, as well for me. So you're not alone there, I think, you know. If you're in therapy, like I say that as, as someone who lives in New York, like everyone in New York is in therapy. So like, like you're, you're figuring out how to like be a better person to, you know, your colleagues, your, your spouse, your family, like all that stuff and like how you show up with your clients. So it happens in lots of like small ways, not necessarily like big ways of, you know, wholesale, like changing, you know, upending my approach to, you know, to, to how we, we do our work, but it happens in like a, a myriad of small ways for sure. 
Okay. So I am looking at the time and I think we probably have to wrap it up because as is always the case, someone else is going to need this Zoom line, Jen. And so we should probably (laughs) wrap it up. So I just want to say again, I feel like we probably said this either at the outset or during each episode, how much I really enjoyed and appreciated each of our conversations this season. I feel like we learned a lot and clearly Jen and I have a lot of food for thought and we can continue to reflect and talk about this and think about all the different ways in which it'll impact our work going forward. And so to all of our guests for this season, we're so appreciative. Thank you. Thank you for being generous with your time. And yeah, this is the best part of doing the podcast, just being able to learn from other people. Yeah. And I'll say thank you to our listeners for showing up and also for if you've made it this far in the episode thanks for listening to us be a little bit vulnerable about what we are processing and trying to figure out and integrate into our own work and so we appreciate you joining us on this journey we're excited for next season which will come out in about uh, six months from now so june roughly of 2022 So until then, friends out there, be safe, have a good holiday, take care of yourselves, take care of others, be kind to yourself and others, and um, we'll see you in season five. See you soon. See you soon.